Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking today at verses 18 through 25. Last week we took a look at Mary and uh, the announcement of the birth of Christ to Mary. And we saw in Mary um, just her response to the angel's announcement to her that she was going to bear a child, it will be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And we saw Mary in three different stages, right? We saw Mary's, first, the revelation that she received. That was the first thing. The second thing that we saw was her humiliation as she humbled herself before the Lord. And then the third thing, ultimately, we saw is Mary's exaltation. And we just read some of that in our scripture reading this morning. And even though Mary knew of all the risks that were associated, uh, potential scandal, shame that was going to come upon her, you know, she makes such a beautiful statement. She says, Behold the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Just total submission, total humility uh, upon the revelation. Well, today we're going to look at another historic figure in this. And that is Joseph. And Joseph is another faithful giant in this story. We hear a lot about Mary. We hear very little about Joseph, right? Everybody knows that song, Mary Did You Know, right? But you don't have a Joseph Did You Know, right? You don't hear of that. Joseph seems to have taken a back seat in this story. But I'm going to submit to you today that Joseph is nonetheless... Nonetheless, a faithful, faithful giant and a man of God. Joseph, like Mary, was exposed to the same shame, the same ridicule. But Joseph, like Mary, in humble obedience, obeyed the Lord. And we're going to see today that Joseph was a righteous man, a humble man. But we're also going to take a look at today at three characteristics of Joseph. We're going to see his humility. We're going to see his obedience. And lastly, we're going to see his faithfulness. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins." Now all of this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, And he called his name Jesus. Now today I want to do this a little bit more in a format 
more like a Bible study kind of format because I really want to break down the text a little bit and just expose some of the beautiful things that are in the text. We see here in verse 18, right? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed when his mother Mary had been betrothed. And we had looked at that when we looked at the announcement of the angel to Mary. I had mentioned to you that betrothal was the second stage in the marriage uh, custom back then. First, there was a commitment, right, where my son is going to marry your daughter or my daughter is going to marry your son, however it was. The second stage was betrothal or espousal. And during that time, that was a formal ceremony. And in the Jewish law, they were considered husband and wife, okay? The only difference is, is after the ceremony, the groom goes back to his family, the bride goes back to her family, right? Uh, And the marriage is not consummated. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to get out of a betrothal or you wanted to get out of an espousal, it required a certificate of divorce. So you would still have to go get a divorce from two witnesses, and it would be considered the same as a divorce of a, ma- of a marriage. So legally, they're husband and wife, okay? But the marriage has not been consummated. If you ever look at Matthew chapter 25, right? Matthew 10, 25 in the parable of the ten virgins, right? What is happening there? They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. The procession would be that the bridegroom in the final stage of the marriage would come with a procession and go to the bride's house, take the bride from the bride's house. There would be a party that would last several days, sometimes as much as a week, and it is at that time that they would come together physically to be husband and wife. Joseph and Mary are not there yet, right? They're not yet uh, there yet. And if you look at verse 18, he goes on to say, uh, when the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, okay, the coming together is referring to that final stage of the marriage ceremony. She was found to be with child, by the Holy Spirit. And here we see uh, right away in this text the emphasis again on the immaculate conception of Christ. Right? Notice how Matthew puts it. She was found to be together with child. Right? The implication of this phrase was that Mary was preg- was indeed pregnant before the consummation of the marriage. And not only that, but he says he found to be with child by who? The Holy Spirit. Both Luke and Matthew emphasize this. Why? Because it's fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew makes it clear that this was not the work of any other man rather than the work of God through the Holy Spirit. And so we see here, we see consistency between the Gospels. We see consistency between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now one thing you should know about Matthew's Gospel is Matthew's Gospel 
Matthew's gospel intended audience are Jews. And so you're going to see in the gospel of Matthew more references to Old Testament scripture than in any other gospel before. So you could see how Matthew, with that mindset, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going back to the prophet. Matter of fact, he's going to bring us back to the prophet several times in this narrative. And notice what else it says in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. The old King James says it, Joseph being a just man a righteous man, a follower of the law, someone whose heart was after God. As a matter of fact, the technical definition of that term righteous or just means that they are approved of God, okay? And it really relates to the conformity of God's standard of justice. Now, I want to call this out because this is really critical here. Here we see that Joseph is not just an ordinary person, but Joseph is a follower, of the living God. You know, it's a really amazing thing I don't think, you know, we, we tend to see too often, right? Mary, right, when she is chosen by the angel, says, hey, blessed art thou among women, uh, among women. It wasn't that there wasn't anything inherently special about Mary, right? It was she would be blessed Because she was the woman chosen by God to bring the Savior into the world. Here we see Joseph, a righteous man, a just man, one whom also God had selected. And we see in Joseph a heart's desire to do that which is right before the eyes of God. And what was Joseph doing? Well, he was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace Mary. He did not want to shame Mary. Now, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law called for, if a woman was caught in the act of adultery, that her and the man, could be guilty of stoning. Remember when they brought the woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus and they said, hey, the law requires, you know, she's going to be stoned. There was one big omission. Where was the guy? He wasn't there, right? The law required to. Now, it didn't mean it had to. It just reserved the right that it could. But if it chose not to, just to give you an idea of this. If they chose not to, the woman caught in the act of adultery would be ineligible for marriage. What would that mean? She would be ruined. No man would want to marry her. Right? And we see something right here in the text. Joseph, being a righteous man, he didn't want to disgrace her. He didn't want to put her away, uh, put her through that entire process. Joseph, you can, you can see through the text, you can see through the words, that he had a love for Mary. This wasn't just an arbitrary, you know, caveman winning. You know, she's my wife, oh, she's no good to me, I'm going to throw her out. That he had a genuine affection, he had a, 
a genuine lover. And so what was Joseph going to do? He didn't want to disgrace her. He desired to put her away secretly. More than likely, that did involve getting that certificate of divorce and sending her someplace where she would not be known. Now, when you think about that, that sounds a little cold maybe in our day, but it is an act of mercy, right? Because he's sparing her the shame, the scandal, the disgrace. And by the way, that shame, scandal, and disgrace would have also been brought on himself as well. Your woman was unfaithful to you. Your woman was um, conceived a child out of wedlock. Now, I want to point out a point here that perhaps we don't we don't hear too often in the Christ, in the Christmas narrative, and that is we see that Joseph's life did not merely exist in positional truth but rather in purposeful truth. What's what's positional truth? Positional truth is doctrinal truth. It's things, doctrinal issues of the faith that are true. It's positional, right? We believe that Jesus came and died for sinners so that all who put their faith and trusted him would have eternal life. That's a positional truth. There are going to be many people who are going to believe that positional truth that will end up in hell. They'll believe it. They'll believe it intellectually, but not by faith. A purposeful truth takes the positional truth And it brings it by faith into action. That's what a purposeful truth does. The purposeful truth takes that positional truth and it produces transformation in the believer. Believers are called throughout the Scripture. They don't use the terminology, but they're called through the Scriptures to live purposeful truth apprehending the Word of God by faith and through the Spirit's enabling, applying that into our lives that we now become the living Word of God, right? We live out the Word of God in our lives. There's a good example of this. I'll give you a good example of this. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You probably know this as the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This is a good example here. This is the words of Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Right? The truth of this verse is that the gospel is to be proclaimed, that we're to go out into the world and it is to be proclaimed. Now, I think most Christians would say, yes, I believe in the necessity to proclaim the gospel. 
That's the positional truth. The purposeful truth is contained in four verbs in that verse. The four verbs are go, make, baptizing, and teaching. And all these verbs, all these action words, must be acted upon. We can believe theoretically that we are to share the gospel. We, we can believe intellectually that we're to go into the world or the gospel is to go into the world. But to make it purposeful, it takes action. And the action is to go. It is to make. It is to teach. It is to baptize. It's taking the Word of God and applying it to your respective life. Right? Really, rather than merely stating it, purposeful truth activates it. It becomes alive in the believer. And it's very clear, as we see from the text, as we're going to see throughout this text back in Matthew, um, Matthew 1, that Joseph was a man of action. A man who desires to live a life that is pleasing to God. A man who puts his faith into action. Now before we go one step further, that's the challenge to every single believer. What do you do with the Word of God? What do you do with the, with the salvation? What do you do with the person of the Holy Spirit that is in you? And He is there to enable, to equip, to take the gifts that God has given us and manifest it. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We don't sit in a crowd and look at the few gifted people and admire the gifted people and we, we just say, boy, I long to be like that. God has equipped every believer with spiritual gifts for the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we availed ourselves to God and say, Lord, take whatever gift I have and use it for the glory of God? That's the challenge. Here, Joseph is clearly a man that does that. Take a look at verse 20 of Matthew 1. And when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at the text here, it says here, but when he had considered, considered what? When he had considered what? When he considered everything he knew up until that moment about Mary, that Mary was with child, Right? He had not, he did not know at this point that the child that she was bearing was the Son of God and that it was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to get this because the text, when you look at it, when he had considered this, and that term simply means that when Joseph, Joseph did consider this, this was his game plan. His game plan was to put her away. The verb suggests that he had concluded in his mind, 
This is the best alternative. I'm going to put her away. I'm going to put her away secretly. This way we're not going to cause a big scandal. We're not going to be, uh, cause big shame. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This is interesting because an angel of the Lord appears to him and he appears to him in a dream. Right? And this is one of four times in the New Testament where the angel of the Lord appears in a dream. Some of the other ones that he's appeared to in a dream were the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle John with the revelation, he appeared to him in a dream. He appeared to Paul with the, the vision of the man of Macedonia. And we see here God immediately in the precise and perfect time comes to Joseph. And he comes with a greeting, right? He says, Joseph, son of David. Now, we know that Mary Mary is in the royal line of David, but Joseph was also in the royal line of David as well. And the angel comes with a greeting that was also given to Jesus, son of David. And he says, he says to Joseph, do not be afraid. That actually means don't ever be afraid. What I'm going to tell you is there's no reason for fear. You never have to fear this, right? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then the angel reveals to Joseph, for that which has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. You, could you imagine yourself in Joseph's shoes? Mind-blowing is right, absolutely. Here the angel comes and says, don't do it. Would that have been enough for some of us, I often wonder? You know, could we have said, that's, that's cool, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. I just don't want anything to do with this. Or I don't want that shame to be cast upon my name or or cast upon my family. And here, this is why we see right here Joseph's humility. Right? He pauses at the word. He says that, uh, the angel says, for that which has be, uh, been conceived of in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel goes on in verse 21, and she shall bear a son and shall uh, call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from the sin. From, it, from their sins. She's going to bear a son. The, air, the angel foretells, just like she, uh, the angel did to Mary, that she was going to have a son. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, for a son will be given unto us. Right? And so he says, you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now I hope everybody here knows, right, that... Jesus is really the Greek word for Joshua. Matter of fact, the Greek word is Iesus, right? Which simply means either Yeshua, Yeshua, which is Joshua, which means God's salvation. God's salvation. You're going to have a son, a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. 
right? You're going to call him God's salvation. God's salvation. And notice what else the angel says. For it is he, and the implication in the Greek is that it is he and he only. It's an emphatic. It's, it is he, he and he only is going to be the one who saved his people, notice, from their sins, plural. They could have said he's going to save them from their sin and he could have referenced the fall, but it goes well beyond the fall. Jesus is going to be the only one, and this is why we say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is going to be He. He is the only one. He doesn't need an assist from Mary. He doesn't need an assist from the saints. He doesn't need an assist from a pope or from a pastor or from a rabbi or from any other. It is He and He alone who will save his people, from the multiplicity of sins. Where would we be if God saved us from sin? We'd go to hell. Because none of us have one sin. The Lord has saved us from our sins. And the Lord had placed upon Christ the penalty for our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, the prophet Isaiah says. That word saved, the Greek word is sozo. It means to deliver from peril. To deliver from peril. To deliver from danger. To deliver from imminent danger when christ saves a soul when a person comes to repentance and faith in jesus christ they are indeed delivered from peril i think in certain respects we tend to lose that by overemphasizing the grace of god but there is a penalty for unbelief and that penalty is what prompted God to send His Son into the world. Yes, sir. That none should perish, but that all should have faith in Christ Jesus. Here the angel echoes the gospel. It is He, it is Jesus who will save His people from their sins. And now the the angel puts the emphasis on the prophet Isaiah. Notice verse 22. All of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Yes, and clearly, it's Isaiah. There's no ambiguity at all here, right? The very one who prophesied, he says, um, was spoken through the Lord, through the prophet, might be fulfilled. And verse 23 Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And right there, Matthew quotes from the Greek Septuagint of Isaiah 7.14. The prophecy of Isaiah uh, 7.14. Translated, God with us. Now this is critical. It's not a God with us. It's not one of many gods with us. It is indeed 
God with us. And both words, the angels speak of a child that will grow, will save his people from sins. He'll save them from the penalty of sin. And as we know, Christ came to save all who repent and turn to faith in Christ. And from the cradle to the cross, Christ came with one mission. Christ came to save. That's why I, I, I say it often, but I love 1 Timothy 1.15 when Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to reform sinners. He came to save sinners. He came to transform sinners. He came that all who put their faith and trust in Him will have new life in Christ. Not that they would have a lot of friends. Not that they would have a lot of money. Not that they would have a lot of wealth. Not that they would never get sick. That they would be transformed. They would be born again. And they would be saved from the peril of an eternity in hell without Christ. I love the writer of Hebrews. Probably I think next to Romans. I think Hebrews is my second favorite book in the Bible. The writer of Hebrews captures this very clearly in Hebrews 12 too. He says this, this is not new, you probably know this. Okay. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I call your attention to the phrase there, who for the joy set before him. Christ came and knew precisely what he was doing. And somewhere in eternity past, the Father had said to Christ, hey, I'm going to send you. You're going to go. You're going to be born of a woman. You're going to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you now. In that, you're going to be bruised, battered, beaten, crucified, ridiculed, maligned. People are going to hate you. They're going to run from you. You're going to be as as one despised and rejected of men, as the Lord told the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Mm. And you're going to You're going to become the penalty for sin. I am going to pour out my wrath upon your physical body. I am going to pour out my wrath upon you. And you will endure my wrath. And you will become that penalty for sins you did not commit. But for my elect. And you will die a physical death. And you will lay in the tomb. And on the third day, you will rise again, overcoming death and overcoming the grave. And somewhere in eternity past, Jesus Christ said, I'll do it. I'll do it. No man is going to take my life. I lay my life down. I'm the good shepherd. 
I give my life for the sheep. I'm not the hireling who when he sees the wolf coming, turns and he runs. No, I am the good shepherd. I will lay my life down. I give my life for the sheep. So Christ came and he saw a joy that was before him. And that joy was the ransom and the redeeming of all of, of all of those who God gave to him. Matter of fact, Jesus said, all who the Father has given me, I lose not one. I lose not one. And the Father has given him, uh, he has given the believers to Christ as a reward for Christ's faithfulness where Christ has stood, Christ has redeemed, and Christ calls and the Spirit calls and those whom have been given to Him, they hear Him. They don't listen to the word of another. They hear Him. His sheep know His voice. They hear His voice and they respond. And they come. And Jesus said, all who the Father gave me, I lose not one. For the Father who has given these to me is greater than all. So when Jesus came from that very cradle, what did he see? He saw a cross. He saw a cross. And as Jesus preached across his three years of ministry, and in that last year, how he purposefully and intently marched to Jerusalem. That was not coincidence. Jesus was going there intentionally, specifically. He kept telling his disciples, I go to fulfill the plan of God. My Father has sent me for this purpose. You remember when he told Peter? He said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of angry men, of of wicked men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. Peter says, Lord, God forbid. Remember what he told Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So when the Lord did this, for the joy, for the glory of the Father, for the glory of the Father, that was the joy that was before Him. The redemption. Taking back that which was robbed from the curse. Setting free the captives. That's what He came to do. Putting an end to sin and to death. But there's something else in that text in Hebrews 12 too I want you to see. It says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. That word endured means to remain under the load. To remain under the pressure. And in His will, He allowed Himself to be subjected to the taunts, to the cruelties that were hurled about Him at the cross. And notice one other thing. It says He despised the shame. And to despise the shame, that word despise means He thought lightly of the shame. He thought lightly of being treated as a criminal. He thought lightly of being abused. He thought lightly of hanging naked upon a cross. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. And He completed His mission. 
And He brought salvation into a dying world. And He humbled Himself under the hand of God the Father. And what was the result? It was finished. He sat down. Job well done. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is done. That's what He yelled out on the cross, right? It is finished. It's reconciled. It's all done. Turn back to Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 1, I'm sorry. And here we're going to see Joseph's obedience and his faith. Verse 24, notice this. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife. Remember Mary? Behold the bondservant of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy word. And now you see Joseph after having been given this in a dream. Joseph arose and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He didn't put her away. Joseph said, this is a work of God. I'm going to take her as my wife. She will be my wife. And again, bear in mind, she will be taken as the wife. There's going to be a lot of questions. You know, even to this day, in Jewish literature, Jesus is referred to as the illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier. That's, That's how Jesus is referred to. Right? But Joseph, in obedience, took her as his wife. He followed through on his betrothal. And look at verse 25. And he kept her a virgin, and a very subtle word there, until. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This would seem to dispel the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That she never had other children. We know that the Scriptures do say that Jesus had brothers. These would have been half-brothers, brothers with Mary and Joseph. As a matter of fact, Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56 name who these are. It's very clear. I've heard that argued that these are really cousins. Well, the, Bible, the Greek had a word for cousins, and that's not the word that's being used in there. Matter of fact, Jesus had half brothers and he had half sisters, which means that Mary did subsequently have children. I want to call your attention to something else here. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he, this may seem insignificant, he called his name Jesus. Now, there's an implication in he. The naming of a child was always done through the father. The father named the child. The angel commanded him that his name is going to be Jesus. We see that Joseph took Mary as his wife. And the implication is is that Joseph adopted Jesus as the son because he named 
him. In Luke 2, verse 21, it says this, And when the eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. So we have two parallels here between Joseph and Mary. Two parallels. Two faithful, faithful servants of the Lord. And like Mary, we see Joseph's humility and obedience and faith. And these are virtues that the Lord requires of the faithful. This is not just limited to Joseph and Mary. We too are called to be obedient before the Lord. We too are called to be humble before the Lord. We too are called to be obedient to the Word of God. What does the Word of God tell us about these virtues? Well, what does the Word of God say about humility? Well, Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Not boastful, not arrogant, not thinking I know everything, not I will do what I want to do, and then when I'm in trouble, I'll ask the Lord, and He'll answer me, and He'll do what He's got to do. But to walk humbly, circumspect, righteously before God. We just saw that the Word of God told us that Joseph was a just and righteous man whose delight was in the Lord. We saw both Mary and Joseph were humble enough that despite all of the risk and potential scandal, they were willing to trust the Lord, to humble themselves before Him so that God's will would be fulfilled. So we see their humility. We also see their obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Speaking of this, Samuel says, Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Notice this. As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that of the fat of rams. Mm-hmm. Obedience that's faith in action. Remember I was talking about purposeful truth? The ability to take the positional truth and now act upon it and put it in action? Well, obedience is much the same. We obey, we do, because we take God at His Word. It is taking action because one believes in the heart in God and in His Word. This is something that today many, many, many seem to forget. We can walk through the requirements of the faith. Listen, we can walk through the requirements of the faith without ever obeying the Lord. Joseph and Mary knew this. They knew that true faith is revealed in obedience to God. And so they did what was commanded of them by God the angel they obeyed lastly we saw their faith i love this romans 4 is one of my favorite chapters in the bible but in romans 4 20 and 21 speaking of abraham paul writes this yet with the respect of the promise of god he did not waver in unbelief Mm -hmm. but grew strong in faith giving glory to god 
and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Faith is the element that brings all these things together. And we can know all Scripture intellectually. We can walk through the requirements of the faith. Even be obedient to commands. But faith is what brings vibrancy and life to our souls. It's faith. The writer of Hebrews again puts it this way in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. They don't casually seek Him. The believer in Christ diligently seeks Christ. He does so by faith because he knows that faith is the essence. It is the force. It's everything that we need to live a life of righteousness before God. As we consider these great heroes of Joseph and Mary, let us examine ourselves. Our faith in Christ, listen, our faith in Christ is not seasonal. You ever hear the people say, well, Christmas is a time to celebrate this, celebrate that, celebrate the other. No. Our faith as believers is not seasonal. We don't in the month of December get a wake-up call and go, oh, let me act like this. No, our faith is consistent. It is rooted and grounded in Christ. It is rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Wednesday I was up at Christian Care Ministry. I had an opportunity to preach chapel over there, and I made a statement in that service. I said, listen, we don't worship a season. We're not druids. We worship and celebrate Christ. And that is not limited to December. That is 365 days a year. We're not calling on everyone at this time of year to be of good cheer. Rather, our Lord's birth should call us. It should call us to examine ourselves. Our humility before God. Our obedience to God. And our faith in Christ. Are we in the faith? Do we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, energy, passion? That's the question. Do we have faith, as the writer of Hebrews says, that pleases God? That pleases God, not pleases us. Pleases God. Listen, there will always be sacrifice with saving faith. There will always be inconvenience with saving faith. There will always be suffering with saving faith. And there will always be a call to service involved in saving faith. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We don't get to sit on the sideline. We're in the game. And the gate is narrow. And most 
do reject the gospel. And we will suffer for the faith. But in the end, Christ is worth it. Is that your heart? Is that our hearts? Can we take the punches and keep rolling? Can we take the rejection of people and keep going? Can we take being abused and ridiculed and scandaled and hurt and yet continue to plow forward, 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 forward with the gospel? That's the question. We saw in Joseph and Mary two people who answered that call. Yes. There will be ridicule. Yes. There will be suffering. Yes. There will be sacrifice. Yes. There will be scandal. Yes. Yes, Lord. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy word. And that should be our heart. Let's bow in a word of prayer.